begin by reading verse number one. The Bible there says, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin, Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. If you're in the habit of marking your Bible, you may wish to mark a phrase found in the fourth verse where the Bible says this, Turn us, O God. Turn us, O God, will be the title of our message this morning coming out of this fourth verse. And as I think about this particular day and this particular theme, I think to myself that a new year is certainly a blessed thing. To be able to begin again with a fresh start can be life-giving to some of us in this room. You may be someone this morning who looks back at 2023 and perhaps maybe you feel some level of regret or maybe some level of failure. For some, 2024 is viewed as a fresh opportunity to grow in certain ways that perhaps maybe they feel as if they're lacking in. Maybe you are looking to grow in the area of your physical health or maybe you're looking at this coming year as an opportunity to grow in your career. There may be some who are contemplating furthering their education, taking up a new hobby in life, beginning a new relationship, or perhaps dedicating themselves to become a more diligent reader or learner. And I have to tell you, all of these things are good. Uh, all of these things are, are, are wise. If you perhaps sense a, a weakness in your life in one of these areas, uh, let me encourage you to, uh, in your desire to seek to strengthen uh, yourself, uh, both uh, in your own body and in your mind. And yet, isn't it interesting that we, at this time of year, we spend a lot of time contemplating growth in these areas while, while remaining ignorant concerning spiritual growth and spiritual things? Wouldn't it be a shame to die with a physically healthy body but a spiritually sick soul? Wouldn't that be a tragedy? To be able to stand in front of a mirror and to be able to admire oneself or perhaps maybe to look at a, at a row of certificates and degrees and diplomas and, and to be able to think, I've earned all of those things. I've accomplished all of that. 
Or perhaps maybe to, uh, to, to look at your career and to think to yourself, you know, I rose to this level. I began down here, but by the time I was all done, I had arrived at this particular level in my career. And to be able to admire oneself in those areas and yet to stand before God someday and not to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What a waste it would be to educate oneself intellectually while remaining ignorant concerning spiritual things. Many will die with much material wealth and physical growth and development, but they'll die with no spiritual treasures whatsoever. Can I urge you to place a much greater emphasis this year on growing spiritually than you might ordinarily consider? Uh, on a time in which perhaps you're, you're receiving emails and you're reading blogs and, and, and perhaps you're watching programs and listening to podcasts that are encouraging growth in, in the physical and growth in the intellectual and, and growth in the, in the career and in your, in your wealth and how to, how to arrive at another level. Can I encourage you to put that aside for just a moment? And can I encourage you to consider how might I be able to grow spiritually in the coming year? Since many look at the start of a new year as a way to get back to exercising physically, I'm told, I'm given to understand, those of you that spend a lot of time in gyms, I have to take your word for it because I don't spend a lot of time there myself, but they say, they say this is a frustrating time of year. Because for those that are in the habit of working out consistently and diligently and regularly, uh, that it's sort of a, you know, we come to the first couple of weeks of a new year and all of a sudden the gym's a whole lot more crowded than it was and now I have to wait for the machine that I normally use and, and, uh, and, and now there's, you know, there's people here that maybe don't necessarily know what they're doing and, and it just is a little bit of an annoyance and, and, and so lots of people are thinking about physical growth and, and, and physical exercise. Can I offer some spiritual exercises that you should seek to grow in in this coming year? I want to give you five things, just by way of introduction, it's not the meat of the message, but let me just give you five things. Uh, in a church of this size, with this many people in it, we always have folks that are visiting or folks that have been coming and are, and, are, and are brand new in their faith. For some of you, this is going to be old hat, it's going to be things that you've been doing for years, but for some, this is perhaps revolutionary. Can I encourage you to consider the spiritual discipline of consistent Bible reading in 2024? Determine, determine to read a portion of scripture each day of this new year. And by the way, it need not be lengthy. Sometimes we get bogged down and we think, well, I've got to read this much and, and, uh, and some of it's challenging and some of it is difficult. And can I just say, just get in the book and read God's word and you'll find that it becomes a part, a consistent part of your life. The Bible says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That means his delight is in God's word. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. What value does that bring into a life? Well, the next verse tells us, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You know, the world's trying to tell you in order to prosper in 2024, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this. You know what God's trying to tell you? God's saying you could prosper if you'll just make my word a priority in your life. If you'll meditate on my word, if you'll delight in my word, you will find that everything that you do 
will prosper. Can I, can I encourage you in the spiritual exercise, not only of consistent Bible reading, but how about the consistent uh, spiritual exercise of strengthening your prayer life? Not just, not just determines you're going to read some scripture every day, but make a determination every day I'm going to talk to God. And I'm going to allow him opportunity to talk to me. Whatever level your prayer life is at now, it can, it can be improved upon. Develop a prayer list. Write some things down that, that you're passionate about, that you have a burden for in your life. Carve time out each day to pray. Start a prayer journal that tracks requests and answers to prayer. Settle, settle on a specific place where you're going to pray. All of these things will help you to strengthen your prayer life. Jesus Jesus, the Bible says that he spake a parable in Luke 18 and verse number one. He spake a parable unto them to this end. Here's, in other words, here's why he spoke this parable. It was for this reason that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Can you look back at 2023 and can you have to sort of hang your head in shame a little bit and say, you know, I have to admit I fainted a little bit in my prayer life in 2023. Hey, listen, get back, get back with it. Strengthen your prayer life. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 and verse number 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse number 17, just three simple words, but how revolutionary they are. Pray without ceasing. So as you think about this new year and you're thinking about what things can you do to grow about reading your Bible every day, how about praying every day? Here's the third one. Can I say number three would be this. Commit to be faithful to the house of God. Commit to be faithful to the house of God. You know, enough of this, enough of this going to church if we feel like it. I think we need to move on from that. I think we need to do better than that. It's time for us to, uh, to rise to another level. Uh, Brother Ron read the passage of Scripture at the beginning of the service. He had no idea that I would touch on this. But can I say determined to be a Hebrews 10, 25 Christian? That passage of Scripture says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Never live in such a way that your children, or that your, your spouse, that your family ever have to wonder if you're going to church. Don't, don't allow that. Don't, don't open that door in your home. Dad, are we, are we going to church tonight? Dad, are we going to church tomorrow? No, no, we ought to live in such a way uh, unless we're, we're providentially hindered, unless we're sick or perhaps we're, we're out of town or maybe, maybe there's a work emergency that comes up. We are in the house of God. We're in our place. Commit in 2024 to be a faithful Christian to the house of God. You know, in the house I grew up in Sunday was the Lord's Day. And I was just thinking, I was putting some notes together. I thought, in my house I grew up in, Wednesday was the Lord's Day too. You know, Wednesday night was a, was a you know, and I, and I say that in a, in, a, in, a, in a sarcastic way. But I mean, we had church on Wednesday night. We were there. We never sat and wondered, you know, it's Wednesday. I wonder if we're going to church. No, if the church was meeting, we were there. There was a special meeting, missions conference, revival, whatever the case might be. I'm just saying we're, we're, we're living in a day and age in which we have marginalized things that are of great significance and great importance. What if, what if the service that you laid out of was the one in which God was going to do a great work in your heart? Boy, determine to be faithful, commit to be faithful to the house of God. 
The Bible says in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Something special that happens when we gather together, church family. Can I say number four, develop this, this, uh, this idea, uh, help yourself to grow in 2024 spiritually, develop a burden for the lost. Carry gospel tracts with you and be bold in your witness. And I just have to tell you, if you'll start reading your Bible regularly, and you'll start praying every single day, talking to God, allowing him to talk to you. And if you'll commit to be a faithful believer to the house of God, I think just automatically out of that will grow a developing burden for the lost. I just think it'll happen organically. It'll happen very naturally. Carry, as you carry gospel tracts and you're bold and, and, and you'll discover, again, just a growing, natural growing uh, burden for lost people. I say... Fifthly and finally, if you want to grow in 2024, considering spiritual exercise, can I encourage you to practice giving? Practice giving. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave. The love of God is a sacrificial love. And the Bible says that the love of God in the book of Romans is shed abroad in our hearts. In other words, it's something that God gives to us once we become a believer. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that they would abound, he says, in this grace of giving. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse number 7, Therefore as ye abound in everything, in faith, and, and in utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. And if you study the context, you'll find that he's talking about giving, giving an offering to the saints that were there in the church that was at Jerusalem. The Bible says in Luke 6, 38, Give, and it shall be given unto you good measure pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom for at the same measure that ye meet uh, with all it shall be measured to you again i remember learning as just a young boy learning this principle that you can never outgive god that god is a debtor to no man you start practicing giving you determine that in 2024 i'm going to be committed to giving to the lord uh, you'll find God will do some amazing and incredible things in your life. I have no doubt that a commitment to these spiritual disciplines, these spiritual exercises will pay off in far greater ways than most of the New Year's resolutions the world is contemplating at this very moment. So there's the question. Will you commit to developing in these areas as you see a specific need in your life to do so? But turning back to the 85th Psalm, we discover a prayer from the psalmist to the Lord for a returning or for a return. In, in, in context, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel had been scattered as a result of their sinful ways and their sinful practices. And yet by this point, there had been three different opportunities for God's people to return back to the land of promise. The three, the three returns were led by Zerubbabel, by Ezra, and by Nehemiah. And we can read of these in, uh, in our Old Testament However, many, many more people remained, many more Jews remained living in exile than compared to the small remnant that was now dwelling back in the promised land. And this was a great burden to the psalmist. He looked around him and there in the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem and, and there were people there. It had been desolate for a long time. But he understood, he recognized there were far, far more people living outside of the boundaries of this promised land. 
who should have been living inside the boundaries of this promised land than there were that were, that, that were living there. Far more people had chosen to remain living in exile, living in captivity. And so the heart of the psalmist, and can I also just say the heart of God, was that there would be a return, that there would be a return of all of the Jews back to this land. And can I just say that this return was much more than just a geographic return. In other words, he didn't, want, he didn't want them to be there just so that the land could be more populated. No, no, there was something much more important that was going on. You see, a return to Israel would be an acknowledgement of why they had been driven out of this land to begin with. By coming back, by coming back, they would be acknowledging the reason why we left in the first place is because of our disobedience and because of our wickedness. Because we had violated God's laws. We knew what he said, and yet we did the exact opposite. And that's why we, that's why we had to leave to begin with. And also to return would be a willingness to say, now I'm willing to live in accordance with God's law and God's ways. If you ever wonder why so few had returned, this is likely the reason. Because they had kind of gotten really comfortable living in exile. They didn't want to go back to the promised land. They didn't want to go back to life lived underneath God's laws and underneath God's ways. They were content where they were. And I just have to make a connection as I observe the landscape of American Christianity today. I, I too long for the Lord to turn us back to biblical faithfulness and obedience to, to, to all of us as members of this church and perhaps others of you that are visiting your members somewhere else, uh, but, but, but you're, you're in town visiting family this weekend. Uh, my burden, my desire is that God would return us back to some of the things that we just hit on just a moment ago. That more of God's people would determine every day, I'm going to open this Bible before I open my phone, before I turn on the computer, before I turn on the television, before I turn on the radio, before I log on to YouTube. I'm going to open God's word and I'm going to hear a message from the Lord. Turn us, oh God, to these things. Every day I'm going to find some time on my knees in which I'm crying out to God and I'm praying for his mercy and for his grace and for his forgiveness. I'm praying for an increasing burden in my heart for the lost. I'm praying that uh, there would be a return. There would be a return among God's people to faithful church attendance, that there would be a turning. Turn us, oh God, to faithfulness in the area of giving. I'm praying all of these things. I pray that you would join with me. It feels like there are more believers living in a place of captivity or bondage than there should be or there needs to be. The church culture is overrun with problems and issues. Almost regularly, we learn of spiritual leaders who have succumbed to the devil's attacks. Many believers approach the church with a consumer mentality. What can this church offer me? What can this church do for my children? What can, uh, what can these people provide for me? Commitment and faithfulness are forgotten among many. Christians are living in defeat to addictions, mental health struggles, and secret sexual sins. We've lost a passion for the Great Commission and evangelism. Oh, listen, there is a remnant that is left living in the land of promise where God has designed that we live, but it is a very small remnant indeed. Uh, the, the, the prayer of our hearts ought to be, just as the psalmist prayed in this passage of Scripture, turn us, O oh God. Turn us back to biblical, New Testament, faithful Christian living. Now the psalmist lists some specific areas 
in which he longed to see people turning back to God. And if we will see a return to these in our lives and the lives of those we know and love, we can have revival as he prayed out there in verse, uh, verse, number, <clears throat> verse number six, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? I believe that if God will turn us in these areas, we can have the most blessed year we've ever had in the history of this church. Number one, can I say, the psalmist here is crying out and he says, first of all, turn us, O God, to thy salvation. Turn us, O God, to thy salvation. Would you look in verse number four? Turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Look in verse number seven. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. In the first verse, the psalmist references how God had been favorable to his people and to his land and how he had brought back the captivity of Jacob. The second verse explains how God had in his compassion, his mercy, he had forgiven their iniquity and covered their sin. At one time, according to verse number three, God had been very angry with his people over their sin, but now their punishment was complete. They had, they had, they had spent the 70 years there in Babylonian captivity, and now the end of that 70 years was come, and God was ready to move ahead with them. And God, in his own uh, time and in his own power and his own mercy, God had provided, miraculously provided salvation for his people. Bible tells us in the book of Ezra, chapter number one, in verse number one, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit. He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus was not a faithful, obedient man. He did not know the Lord. And yet the Bible is clear that the heart of the God, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And the Bible says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And he, here's, the, here's the proclamation that he made throughout all of his kingdom in verse number three. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. Now listen, you, you, you might read that and not think a whole lot of it, but let me just tell you something. That is a miracle. That is a miracle. You remember, what, you remember what Pharaoh did when he had the Hebrew people in captivity? He didn't want to let them go. You know, he viewed them as vital to his power and to his kingdom. And even in the midst of great plagues sent by God, he continually hardened his heart. And yet the Bible tells us here in Ezra chapter number one that God did the opposite in the life of Cyrus, king of Persia, that God stirred up his heart. There was a group of people, no doubt, living in his land, paying taxes, helping the economy. And yet Cyrus one day woke up and he felt a stirring in his heart. It was God that was stirring in his heart. He said, you know, there's a land not far from here that remains desolate. It's uninhabited. Who is there among you that hail from that land? Why don't you go back and why don't you re-inhabit that land? And why don't you build the temple once again to worship God, who is, by the way, the only true God in all of this world? That's salvation, and that's miraculous. And the salvation the psalmist wrote of was deliverance from Babylonian and Persian captivity. However, listen, the salvation that Christ offers to us today is deliverance from something far greater. 
Jesus offers deliverance from eternal damnation and suffering. In verse number four, the psalmist is clear that this salvation is offered by God. Oh, turn us, O oh God, of our salvation. And can I just remind you that that same truth is still true today. Their salvation would not have been possible except for the Lord stirring up the heart of Cyrus. Our salvation would not have been possible without God's willingness and mercy to forgive, coupled with his power to redeem us, his willingness to send his son Jesus to hang on an old rugged cross for each and every one of us. God God has shown us mercy, and he is willing to grant salvation to anyone, anyone who will come to him by faith. You may be here today, you may think to yourself, there's, there's no way that the Lord could save me. I've done too many wicked things. I've done too many abominable things. You don't know the things that I've done, the places that I've been, the things that I've been involved in. And I just want you to know something. The Bible still says, whosoever will may come. Whosoever. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can be saved today. Turn us, O God, to thy salvation. Is there someone here today that is lost? If you were to die today, you do not know that you would spend eternity in a place the Bible calls heaven. There is some level of uncertainty there. You cannot pillow your head each night with such confidence that if something were to happen to me, if I were not wake up the next morning, that I know for sure where I would spend my eternal destiny. Listen, you can be saved today if you'll only turn to God. Can I just say that there are many in this room who are saved and have been saved for a a number of years. You say, what's the application here for me? The application is this. All of us likely know someone who does not have that confidence, someone we love, someone we want to spend eternity with, And yet, if the trumpet were to sound today or if they were to breathe their last breath today, we are fairly certain where their eternal destiny would be and it is not in the Father's house. And so what ought we to do as we consider this idea of turn us, O God, to thy salvation? Oh, may there be a growing, burning passion in our hearts and our lives to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with them. May we begin even today to pray for them passionately, to breathe their name out to the Lord. Lord, you know this person. You love them more than I do. Dear God, would you turn them to your salvation this year? May you use me. Uh, May you empower me that I might be the one, that I might be the vessel, that I might be the instrument to bring this glorious message to this lost individual who I love so dearly. Turn us, O God, to thy salvation. But notice, secondly, not only turn us, O God, to thy salvation, but number two, turn us, O God, to thy scriptures. Did you look in verse number eight? Look what the psalmist says. He says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. Let them not turn again to folly. God has spoken, and we can hear from him even today. We can hear what God has to say to us even today. So how might we do that? It's very simple. You hold the key to hearing from God likely in your lap, the word of God. And every time it is open, and every time it is read from, you are hearing directly from the very mind of God. And so we can hear from God today by simply reading, studying, 
meditating on his word. You know, this book that you hold in your hands today is a most unusual book. It was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 human writers. This book, listen, this book is infallible in all of its contents. There is no subject matter it addresses that the author of it is not a master in. The Bible says in Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. The Bible says in Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Jesus said in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Uh, this book, by the way, is alive, and it has the ability to penetrate a man's thoughts and his intents. Psalm 139, 2 says, Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Hebrews 4, 12 says, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even in the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Have you ever opened this Bible? You began to read it? You began to feel a pain here? You thought to yourself, that hurts. It's not a physical pain, but that hurts. As I'm reading it, the very word of God that is thousands of years old is speaking directly into my heart and into my life. It is convicting me. It is, it is, it is piercing me. It is dividing me. It is a discerner of my very thoughts and my intents. In other words, the things that no one else possibly could know, this book knows. Turn us, O God, to thy scriptures. This is an archaic book. You've heard that said before. Oh, you're going to live? You're going to live after an archaic book? And the answer is, yes, it is an archaic book. I think a book that's over 2,000 years qualifies. I don't think we should run from that at all. It is an archaic book. And can I just remind you? It's just as relevant and practical today as it was in the day in which it was written. This book is not the product of the human mind, but rather it reveals to us the mind of God. To obey this book brings great peace to my life, but to disregard it leads me to great folly and heartache. And that's what the psalmist said here in verse number eight. Look what he says there. He says, but let them not turn again to folly. In other words, you know he's saying? He's saying you're in this mess to begin with because you disregarded what this book said. And that's why you were, that's why you were driven out of this land. That's why you spent 70 years in captivity. So get back to hearing what he has to say and don't ever turn again back to the folly of disregarding this book. And may God help each and every one of us to dive back into his word and to never turn back, to never turn back to the ways in which perhaps we find ourselves living in today. Turn us, O God, to thy scriptures. Believers should read this book daily, meditate on it throughout each day, listen to it preached and taught regularly and they ought to obey it always. Always. Turn us, O God, to thy salvation. Turn us, O God, in 2024 to thy scriptures. And thirdly and finally, turn us, O God, to thy standards. Would you look in verse number 10? Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. A standard can be defined as that which is established by sovereign power as a rule or measure by which others are to be adjusted. That which is established as a rule or model. 
So when we say turn us again to thy standards, what we're saying is the sovereign power is God. God is the sovereign power. He has established some certain standards that ought to fill our lives. It ought to emanate from us as we live down here. And by the way, God always deals with people according to his standard. God, God, never, God, God never changes. And God is always dealing with people according to the standard that he has established. You see, God had given them clear teaching in his word on how they were to live. God says, if you'll live this way, you'll be blessed. However, if you violate my laws, you violate my precepts and my commands, if you transgress what I have given you, then there are going to be problems and there are going to be issues. So God laid out very clearly what his standard was, and he said, if you obey my standard, you'll be blessed. If you disobey my standard, here is what will happen to you. Over time, you know the story. If, you're, if you know the word of God in any, in any measure, you know that they repeatedly ignored God's standards. And by the way, by the way, God did not pounce upon them immediately. God was gracious. Perhaps some of you, you're living a life in which you've ignored some of God's standards and you thought to yourself, I'm getting away with this. I'm okay. You know, God promised that if I would do a certain thing that I would have judgment, but I haven't been judged yet. Perhaps I'll be the one person to disobey God in this area and live to tell about it. Now, I just want you to be reminded that God is very merciful. That he is very long-suffering, but at a point in time, that mercy and that long-suffering comes to an end, and judgment and consequence begins. So perhaps maybe you're, you've convinced yourself, you've deceived yourself that you're the one person that's gotten away with this. And I'm here to remind you that the Jews, the Hebrews, did the exact same thing. They turned away from God for centuries. God sent prophets along, and God sent seers along and he sent kings to try to get them back in the right way. He sent judges at different points and in their history he sent different people to minister to them to try to lovingly bring them back, to guide them back into the way that he would have them to live. And you know the story that perhaps there was a period of time in which they repented and got right, but it wasn't long before they fell right back into their old ways. That's what the Bible says in Jeremiah 25. Finally God had enough. His grace and his patience were exhausted and he sent the prophet Jeremiah to warn them with these words. In verse number eight of Jeremiah 25, therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts. There's a message for you. Because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them in astonishment and in hissing and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, and the voice or the sound of the millstones and the light of the candle. In other words, he's saying any sign of life any sign of life, whether it be the working or whether it be the sign of celebration or whether it be the sound of gladness and mirth, all of it, he said, this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Why? Why? Because they had not obeyed God's standard. Because they had not obeyed God's word. 
He says, you've, I've been faithful to give my word. You've not been faithful to obey it. I say that even in judgment, even in judgment, God was careful to abide by his standards. The Bible says that he judged them in mercy and in truth. He judged them in righteousness and in peace. In other words, he did not utterly destroy them. That's mercy. But he did judge them for their sin according to his word. That's truth. He intended to eventually bring them back to a place of rest and inhabiting the land. That's peace. But only, only as they would return and live according to his standard as they had refused to do so in the past. That's righteousness. So even, listen, even in his judgment, he was careful to abide by his standards. Standard given by God and his word is to be reflected among us as his people. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Jesus told his followers, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Can I just remind you that good works, which is what most of the world is trusting in to get them to heaven, good works are not the ways of man. Left to your own devices, you will do, I will do the exact opposite of good works. I will, I will fend for myself. I will take advantage so that I can be elevated, so that I can be lifted up. I will steal. I will cheat. I will lie. I will do abominable things. That's who I am. It's my sin nature. And it dwells inside of me. And if I allow it, it will control me. And it will lead me to do abominable things. The mercy and truth the righteousness and peace that are spoken of in Psalm 85 will never be fulfilled in my life apart from me turning to God and to his standard. I might say, might never be fulfilled apart from God turning me to his standard. See, I don't even want to go there. It's too hard. That's no fun. I want to do what I want to do Therefore, the psalmist wrote, turn us, oh God. I guess what I'm saying this morning is, listen, this is not a turning that you can even accomplish. You must be turned by the Lord. And is there, is there an awakening passion to be turned to God in these areas? For God to turn you to himself in the area of salvation for God to turn you to himself in the area of his scriptures, for God to turn you to himself in the area of living according to his standards. You see, I cannot possibly produce any of these things apart from him. What a year. What a year we would have if the Lord would turn us in these ways. As a church, I could think of no better way for us to live and to abound and to flourish than if we were turned by God to these areas. Imagine for a moment with me the impact this could have on our homes and our families. With every person that we encountered, we had a passion and a burden to reach them with the gospel. We carried tracts and we were faithful to hand them out, to tell them about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine the impact this would have on our homes and families if every day we determined 
I'm going to open this book, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to obey it. And if it points out some area in my life in which I've been disobedient, I'm going to get right with God. And I'm going to allow him to direct me. Lord, speak to me. Lord, let me hear what you have to say. And imagine for just a moment in your marriage, in your workplace, if you determine, Lord, turn me to your standard. Lord, help me to be a man of truth. Help me to be a man of mercy. Help me to be a man or a woman of righteousness. Help me to be a man or a woman of peace. What a difference this would make in our world. Listen, we could have revival if God would simply turn us. If we had a desire to be turned. Problem is there are too many that are stiff-necked. There are too many that are rebellious, that have a hard heart. They want to come to church and want to sit in a pew, but they don't want God to turn them. They turned a long time ago, and they got saved, and that's about as good as it's ever going to get. And I just want you to know God has so much more for you than that. If God wanted to just save you, and that's all he wanted to do, he could have saved you and taken you to heaven then. But no, God has a plan. God has a purpose. And God has a role for you to fulfill down here. It will only be fulfilled as you allow him to turn you turn you to his scriptures and turn you to his standards so that you can be the instrument, the vessel in which he uses to turn others to his salvation. Turn us, turn us, oh God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment. The psalmist had a burden for the people to return to the land. Can I just say the preacher, the pastor has a burden the people to return to consistent, faithful, biblical, New Testament Christianity. There's far, far too many people, even in the Cleveland Baptist Church, who are living in exile. Oh, you're saved. You're born again, but you're still living in Babylon. You're still living in Persia. God has made it possible through a stirring He's made it possible for you to enter into that promised land, but you're not there. Turn us, oh God. Bring us back. Bring us back to the land that is pleasing in thy sight. Turn us, oh God, to thy salvation. Our heads are